Arsenal for Democracy is available twice a week. There's a free episode at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple or Stitcher each weekend and a midweek bonus episode at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy, available for $5 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. From California to the New York Island. From the Redwood Forest to Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. This is Arsenal for Democracy, episode 371, recorded May 4th, 2021. Um, I'm your host, Rachel, recording uh, in my home studio in Boise, Idaho. And with me today is our regular co-host and fearless leader, Bill Humphrey. Hi, Bill. Hi, Rachel. So on this week's bonus episode, we are talking about the Alien Registration Act slash the Smith Act of 1940. So on our bonus episode about the American Protective League, we talked about the implications of the Espionage Act of 1917 and the Sedition Act of 1918 on leftists and immigrants and anti-war activists. In 1940, in the run-up to the U.S. entry into World War II, the United States adopted similar provisions once again in the Smith Act, also known as the Alien Registration Act. Although it's very important to emphasize before we dive into this that it was only partly about immigrants and many of its Title I provisions apply to everyone. Unfortunately, this law is basically intact, albeit largely forgotten, on the books today, which poses an ever-present sword of Damocles over the American left, if the U.S. government ever needed a pretext beyond other laws that they used to crack down on leftist speech and organizing. So, Bill, can you walk us through the Alien Registration Act, also known as the Smith Act? Yes. So the Smith Act passed in 1940, and we'll talk about the exact timing of the passage. Uh, It set criminal penalties for advocating the overthrow of the U.S. government by force or violence, and it required all non-citizen adult residents to register with the federal government. And I'll circle back to that part uh, in a bit. So the core thing that is sort of remarkable to us on the left uh, from the present day vantage point is the provision that says it shall be unlawful for any person with the intent to cause the overthrow or destruction of any such government to print, publish, edit, issue, circulate, sell, distribute, or publicly display any written or printed matter advocating, advising, or teaching the duty, necessity, desirability, or propriety of overthrowing or destroying any government in the United States by force or violence or attempts to do so. Also unlawful to organize or help or attempt to organize any society, group, or assembly of persons who teach, advocate, or encourage the overthrow or destruction of any such government by force or violence, or becomes or is a member of or affiliates with any such society, group, or assembly of persons knowing the purposes thereof. So if you're involved with any sort of organization that is advocating for the revolutionary overthrow of the U.S. government... Uh, or even parts thereof, which we'll talk about in a bit, then that is, even to present day, technically, uh, still illegal. And for immigrants who were convicted of these crimes under the law passed in 1940, 
they could potentially face deportation. You might re recall that that happened with the so-called Red Ark deportations in 1918, uh, which sent anarchists to the Soviet Union, uh, for foreign-born anarchists, I should clarify. Um, but for everyone else, i.e. violators of the Smith Act who were not immigrants, uh, they could face hefty fines up to $10,000 and absurd prison time up to 10 years as penalties. Now, I looked up at the time in 1940, $10,000 would have been equal to more than 10 years of the median man's annual wages. Um, now, after completing whatever penalty was applied in terms of a U.S. citizen as opposed to an immigrant, uh, a U.S. citizen was also ineligible for five years to be hired by any part of the U.S. government, which, of course, at the time would have included work relief programs of the New Deal, which were then in effect. Um, now, the Smith Act in 1940 also amended a 1918 law to clarify that immigrants could be deported for membership in or affiliation to such radical organizations as described above at any point since entering the country, even if they had quit that organization subsequently. Uh, the 1940 law also added weapons and drugs violations as causes for deportation. Uh, specifically, heroin was added uh, as, a, as a drug violation uh, by name. Um, now, interestingly, there were some exemptions or at least special treatment provisions. So the U.S. Attorney General, subject to override power by the U.S. Congress, had some discretion for certain affluent, I guess, immigrants of good character with American dependents uh, who would otherwise be greatly harmed by their deportation of their guardian or provider. Discretion as well for uh, uh, immigrants of appropriate racial stock, so to speak, uh, to decide uh and the attorney general could decide either to let them freely leave the country to some third country of their own choosing on their own dime or to have suspended removal proceedings and remain in the U.S. Now, I have no idea who they had in mind for this. I'm wondering maybe did they mean rich Nazi sympathizers? Like, who were they talking about here? And they're not it doesn't really say like affluent in the text, but that's sort of implied in terms of leaving on your own money to go to some other country that usually requires a certain sort of level of uh, wealth. Uh, at least I think that's probably what they had in mind. I can't imagine they were carving out special exemption for low-income immigrants. And the good character provisions and the racial caste provisions sort of make clear what they had in mind as well. Now, that exemption, it was noted in the law, um, which, by the way, uh, we'll link to it in our usual set of links that we put up with the episode, but it's actually only about six pages long, so not very long to read through. Um, but the uh, exemption by the that the attorney general could apply for special treatment did not apply retroactively to anybody that was targeted by that 1918 law that led to the Red Ark deportations. Um, now, I don't know if there was some reason to think that there were people that they could have prosecuted under that one and hadn't done so yet, but we're still reserving the right to because I don't think there was any real thought that they were going to somehow undeport and suspend the deportations after the fact uh, of people that had been sent to the Soviet Union. Um, now, also, as I mentioned earlier, uh, this law required all non-citizen adult residents uh, or anybody over the age of 14, really, uh, to register with the federal government. So Title III required registration and fingerprinting for all immigrants in general, which required nearly 5 million residents of the U.S. to report to the post office and begin 
processing in late August 1940. The post office was not only conveniently dispersed geographically to be able to handle this, but also, interestingly, they already had fingerprinting equipment on hand at pretty much every post office uh, to fingerprint all the holders of postal savings accounts. So that was, I thought, not that this is a good thing to be doing, but it's an interesting uh, view into how to approach uh, suddenly enacting a major government program uh, and interacting with a large number of people in the population all at once. Um, because, you know, these days it just seems like state capacity is completely shot on everything and anything is outsourced. You know, I can imagine them uh, outsourcing this to, like, the nearest AAA office or something absurd. Now, when the U.S. entered the war over a year after this act, the government used the registrations and fingerprints to arrest nearly 3,000 enemy aliens. That figure I want to note is, uh, as far as I could tell, separate from the broader U.S. West Coast internment of Japanese Americans in 1942, which was actually largely conducted with U.S. Census Bureau data instead of the fingerprinting data from the Alien Registration Act. And obviously that also included a lot of U.S. citizens who were either naturalized or born here. Um, so not great all around. Uh, bad time for the U.S. government's legacy, obviously. But there were some other interesting provisions as well. Um, they prohibited agitating for mutiny or other insubordination by U.S. service members. Um, I assume that really means civilians outside of the military engaging in that, since if you were inside the military promoting mutiny and insubordination, then that would presumably be subject to military justice or military codes. Um, but I thought that was interesting because, of course, they had had that really high-pressure campaign to prosecute anyone during World War One who had advocated uh, anti-war sentiments, basically, or resisting uh, the draft. Um, another thing is, as I mentioned at several points earlier, it's not just against agitation against the U.S. government, like the federal government. It's also you know, that you can't try to overthrow your state government, your municipal government, or other parts of the U.S. government, such as the territorial governments. Now, they miss... Initially, it didn't specify, or like at the beginning of the legislation, what they were talking about. So I was assuming they meant Puerto Rico and Hawaii. Uh, and I went ahead and checked further down in the legislation toward the end. They actually do spell that out. At the time, there would have been some concern about nationalists or independence activists in places like Puerto Rico or Hawaii uh, who were agitating for independence. Um, it did not appear that the Philippines, uh, which was in the process of being transitioned out of U.S. custody um, before World War II even started, um, that did not seem to be covered by this. But in terms of Puerto Rico, Hawaii, Alaska, places like that, you were uh, not allowed anymore to be advocating for the violent overthrow of either the U.S. federal government or the territorial governments. Um, we talked previously about how after World War II, uh, we did an episode on how the Communist Party was very heavily active in uh, organizing unions and organizing actually the Democratic Party in Hawaii uh, to be able to uh, engage in a movement for statehood. But, you know, there were certainly people who would have preferred uh, independence or something like that. There's also a mention in the legislation about the Panama Canal Zone, but that was going to be dealt with by executive order under this law. Uh, and that, as far as I could tell, was not really about the agitation issues as much as just immigration controls and restrictions for the Panama Canal Zone. So let's talk a little bit about the passage of this, and then we'll talk about the consequences of it. So this legislation was introduced in June 1939. 
uh, and passed in the U.S. House in July 1939. And that's kind of interesting because that was actually over a month before the start of the war in Europe with the invasion of Poland. Um, but it kind of stalled after passing in the House until June 1940, when suddenly the Senate took it up and passed it uh, without a recorded vote the day before the collapse of the French government during the Nazi invasion and a couple weeks after the Dunkirk evacuations. The final version uh, was passed the day of the French armistice and then signed into law by President Franklin D. Roosevelt several days later. Um, it seems like at the time, uh, with regard to France that was collapsing as this was happening and the collapse into civil war that had happened in Spain several years earlier in the mid-1930s, uh, the U.S. press was really obsessed with the idea, um, you know, similar to how they had been during World War One, but... Uh, in particular, at this point, before the U.S. entered the war, they were obsessed with the idea that internal domestic subversion was what caused the collapses in Spain and France. Uh, the whole terminology of fifth column comes from the Spanish Civil War, and that was a whole new like vocabulary that you could use to basically suggest that there were enemies everywhere who were preparing to rise up and uh, accomplish some sort of political uh, aim of violence against the government or whatever. And uh, the New York Times wrote in August 1940 of the new law, quote, the Alien Registration Act was merely one of the laws hastily passed in the first spasm of fear engendered by the success of fifth columns in less fortunate countries. Suddenly, the European war seemed almost at our doors, and who could tell what secret agents were already at work in America? So partly because su some such bill would be adopted anyway, and partly because the step normally distasteful now appeared inevitable, the administration sponsored the legislation. Um, but specifically, actually, it was really sponsored by Howard W. Smith, a Democratic congressman from Virginia who was not really an ally of the administration. Uh, and again, remember, there was this in initial introduction that didn't go very far, and then it actually got passed the year later. Uh, Howard Smith was vehemently anti-labor and anti-civil rights. He was a conservative Democratic opponent of much of the New Deal after the first couple of years. Uh, he tried to roll back any and all labor protections, especially after the war began. And uh, as a sort of interesting note about his background, which I think maybe also informs his perspective on this, um, he had worked as uh, an attorney in the Department of Justice during World War I on the specific team tasked with expropriating U.S. property from citizens of the Central Powers who might be using their U.S. property to assist the governments of their home countries in the war effort. This team was led by future Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer of Palmer Raids fame, uh, who permanently seized some 30,000 trusts with assets of well over half a billion dollars, including most famously the Bayer Chemical Company that held the patent on aspirin. And I think that, you know, I don't want to draw a direct line here, but I think that gives you some insight into probably Howard Smith's uh, sort of outlook and worldview on immigrants and their potential sort of subversive roles in the United States. Uh, and I would refer people back in general again to that episode that Rachel mentioned earlier that we did a bonus episode about the American Protective League. Although if you're listening to this, there's a good chance you've already heard that. Now, oddly enough, Howard Smith was very active for, a de uh, for decades on the Equal Rights Amendment and other equal rights for women efforts in the legislative uh, campaigns in Congress. Um, but he was eventually unseated in 1966 in a Democratic primary challenge from his left, 
Uh, but you will not be shocked to learn that this marked a convenient opportunity for conservative Democrats in his district to make the jump to Republicans permanently, which they did at that point. Um, now, that gives you some insight into the content of the Smith Act uh, and into how it was passed, why it was passed, and who passed it. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the actual impact of it. So, Rachel, I know you want to talk about Harry Bridges because he was specifically one of the targets in mind with this uh, legislation in its final form as passed in 1940. Yeah, so uh, one of the big cases was Bridges v. Wixon. Um, so Harry Bridges was a radical labor organizer from Australia, and the Alien Registration Act was used to attempt to deport him based on his, quote, affiliation with the Communist Party um, of the United States and the Marine Workers, Workers Industrial Union, which was affiliated with the IWW. So Bridges was a member of the ILWU, the International Longshoremen and Warehousemen Union, and he was a major organizer of the Maritime Workers' Strike of 1934, which we previously have discussed in episode 344. Um, he was actually never a member of either the CPUSA or the MWIU. And furthermore, this case really um, outlined the definition of affiliation, which has a strong legal meaning that rises higher than sympathy for an organization. So the, the people who prosecuted Bridges really couldn't meet that threshold to prove um, that Bridges was affiliated with um, the CPUSA or any other organization that was planning subversive acts or um, advocating the overthrow of the government. Um, so this, uh, they could only really prove that he had sympathy and affiliation as defined by the Supreme Court means providing money or some other material um, support to an organization that advocated the overthrow of the government. Um, so that was a huge, uh, huge part of the, of the Supreme Court uh, cases, litigation around this law. Um, there were a couple other major cases. Um, so there was a case in Minneapolis um, where uh, members of the Socialist Workers' Party and the Teamsters Union Local 544 um, were arrested under the Smith Act for their labor organizing. So many uh, Socialist Workers' Party members had organized the Minneapolis Teamsters Strike of 1934, which we've also discussed. Um, that was episode 346. And many of these SWP members still held leadership positions in the Teamsters Union. Uh, so this is coming from the Minneapolis Wikipedia, mnopedia.org website. Um, so J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI, worried that the SWP's anti-war position and its ability to organize transportation workers threatened national security. If transportation workers were to strike, it could disrupt the national war effort. Um, Hoover was given permission by the president to spy on those with leftist or communist politics. So on June 27, 1941, FBI agents raided the SWP at headquarters um, in Minneapolis and in St. Paul. So at this point, the Nazis had invaded the Soviet Union and uh, Soviet-backed American communists were now realigned with the Roosevelt administration. So prosecutions, for the most part, began reorienting toward non-Soviet-backed leftists, such as Trotskyites. Um, 
so the trial began on October 27, 1941, with 28 defendants. Um, the judge later dismissed charges against five. The prosecution, represented by Victor Anderson, began its case on October 29th. They argued that the Trotskyists were using their influence in Local 544 to disrupt the nation's industrial sector as a precursor to revolution. Uh, they cited the existence of the Union Defense Guard, which was a unit formed to fight the fascist threat of the Silver Shirts, to argue that the defendants advocated violent resistance. According to Anderson, Marxist ideas were inherently seditious because they predicted and supported revolution. So the defense countered this accusation that they were planning violence by explaining their Marxist view that the fall of capitalism was inevitable and would involve violence. They did not advocate that violence, rather they predicted it. Furthermore, the SWP was a legitimate political party working within the government system. The accusation that their beliefs were illegal, they argued, was a violation of their First Amendment rights to free speech. On December 1st, 1941, after 56 hours of deliberation, the jury handed down its verdict. It acquitted five defendants and found the remaining 18 guilty of alleging seditious speech, publications, and associations. On December 8th, the 18 were sentenced to prison. The longest term served was 16 months. So they, they did attempt to appeal their convictions, but they, they never were able, able to overrule those convictions, and they did serve time. So and there were some other post-war communist trials. There was Dennis v. United States. Um, so Dennis was one of 11 CPUSA leaders um, that were arrested under the Smith Act, and they went all the way to the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court ruled that, uh, that members or leaders of the Communist Party did not have the First Amendment right to free speech, publication, and assembly because the CPUSA inherently advocated the violent overthrow of the government. And this case happened in 1950 and 1951. There was a later case, Yates v. United States, which um, over, uh, which countered Dennis v. United States. Um, so from OEA.org, uh, the court interpreted the Smith Act in the following manner. First, the term organize was construed to mean the creation of a new organization rather than acting and organizing under an existing organization. Uh, second, the court drew a distinction between the, quote, advocacy and teaching of for forcible overthrow as an abstract principle, end quote, and the, quote, advocacy and teaching of concrete action for the forcible overthrow of the government, end quote. The court recognized that instances of speech that amounted to, quote, advocacy of action were, quote, few and far between. Um, so in that case, they really narrowed the scope of the Smith Act, and it had to be advocacy of actions, not just advocacy of beliefs. So that really kind of changed um, the interpretation of the Smith Act at that point in the late 1950s. Yeah, I guess the distinction there of, um, you know, the fall of capitalism is inevitable and the fall of the U.S. government is inevitable. Uh, and, you know, we look forward to the revolution or whatever, as opposed to like, the anarchist cookbook or whatever. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I also wanted to note here uh, before we go on that um, if you were wondering about Nazi prosecutions, because that could have potentially been done, like 
there were there were I think a couple of people that kind of got picked up on that, but uh, you know it was kind of scattered, few and far between in terms of investigations or prosecutions of Nazi sympathizers or people that were vaguely sort of clan types. Uh, Rachel mentioned about that there were silver shirt type groups. Like there were various sort of amorphous right wing groups uh, at the time that you know, were more or less in favor of Hitler, but not necessarily saying that out loud. But the other thing is that just in terms of timing, most of those people or groups either disappeared or flipped to supporting the U.S. government after Pearl Harbor. So the DOJ just didn't really consider it to be a priority in the way that they thought these leftists were. Although, again, uh, in the initial period, they weren't really targeting communists that were backed by the Soviet Union, they were focusing on these sort of other leftists, just like how in the earlier phase in World War One, a lot of the focus had actually been on anarchists rather than on like Bolshevik types. Um, but uh, there was sort of a final phase of this. Uh, Rachel, did you want to talk about that a little bit in terms of what kind of the end stages were for this law? Although, again, it is still active. Yeah, there were a couple more um uh, Supreme Court cases, Scales v. United States and Noto v. United States. Um, so they reviewed uh, the Smith Act's membership provision, which actually made it a felony to be a member of an organization such as the Communist Party that advocated the overthrow of the United States. So what those two cases did um, was they restricted the application of the Smith Act so that Communist Party membership was not a sufficient criterion for de deportation. The person had to actually participate actively in the group's activities, promoting or inciting revolutionary overthrow of the U.S. government. So this was kind of a continuation of the action versus beliefs um, that that was started with Yates v. United States. And as we said, the law is still on the books, but the U.S. government hasn't seriously prosecuted anyone under it since 1961. Again, it's always an option for them to roll back and do something with it, but they seem to have plenty of other laws on the books for charging people with things with 20-year sentences. So, you know, so far they haven't felt a particularly strong need to do that, I guess. And it's easier to charge people with various, you know, mayhem-related and rioting-related charges as opposed to more amorphous ideological charges like this. Um, but interesting to talk about it, and I think worth pointing out again, as we did at the beginning, that this applied to immigrants, and there were various immigrant-related provisions in this, and they could get deportation, but it also applied to U.S. citizens as well, um, which is worth understanding for our history. That brings us to the end of this episode. Um, as always, thanks for listening, and uh, keep supporting the, the patron, uh, patreon.com slash arsenal for democracy, where you will continue to get these bonus episodes weekly. Thank you. Thanks.